Well, it's like babysitting, you know, for 400 children. You know, I can't really leave them. At least I couldn't leave them um, for very long. Hello and welcome to the Country Life Podcast. I'm your host, James Fisher, and with me this week is my esteemed producer and editor, Toby Keel. Hello, Toby. Hi, James. Lovely to be here. Well, lovely to have you here. Uh, listeners might be thinking, Toby Keel, that's not a, that's not a name I necessarily recognise. And uh, that's because Toby very kindly took over the interview this week because uh, I was laid up in bed with what I can only describe as one of the most vicious cases of man flu that scientists had ever recorded. Indeed, when they finished studying me at the hospital, they said it was thing, something they'd never seen before. I mean, it's, it did sound bad for a minute. You almost ran out of Lemsip, I, didn't you? I, it, it, was, was, it was a close one. I mean, having to sort of crawl to the local Tesco. I mean, I, thankfully, I managed to sort of beat some old man out of the way just as he was reaching for it. But it was a close run thing. I'm, I'm glad to hear you made it through. That's, uh, these, these things are sent to test us. But yes, <laughs> normally I'm, I'm quite happy hiding behind the, the computer, pushing buttons that make weird sound effects like... Uh, for this week only, I, I was very happy to, to step in to speak to Rosamond Young, who um, I don't know if you want to do the intro, Jim, or shall no. I? I mean, I mean, you took you took the helm on this one, so please do tell the uh, listeners all about Rosamond Young. Yeah, so Rosamond is a, a farmer who wrote a book uh, twenty years ago now that um, was almost unread for a long time, but then was picked up and republished in twenty eighteen and became a huge international bestseller and uh, totally took her by surprise and um, now she's got a new book out the original was um, The Secret Life of Cows and the new book is called The Wisdom of Sheep and Other Animals and Rosamond very kindly agreed to come on Uh, she's also uh, allowed us to publish an excerpt from her new book on the website which we'll be sending a link to in the programme notes so you can read that and uh, we'll also put links to a series of articles Rosamond wrote for us a few years ago for Country Life which were absolutely beautiful and highly recommended. Oh, fantastic news. Dear listener, don't say we don't spoil you. Shall we crack on and have a listen then? Absolutely. So, um, Rosamond Young, lovely to have you on the programme and here to talk about uh, all sorts of things, farming and your life and your new book, The Wisdom of Sheep. Called it The Wisdom of Sheep, for better or worse. But it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a disputed title because I can't prove it, obviously. <laughs> From observations, they they seem much wiser than people. So at this point in history, that seems um, a fairly low bar to clear, doesn't it? <laughs> I think it's it's only people that make that make mistakes. I've never met an animal that made a mistake. They know their own minds. Um, people don't. Animals know what they want. People don't. So we we're the ones that cause all the trouble. So I have to. My job is just observing what the animals tell me they need, and they're always right. So it's fairly easy as long as I keep my eyes open. How long have you been dealing with animals? Um, did you grow up on oh, a farm? Forever. Or... I'm 70 and I was born um, on a farm and I've never known anything else. I don't think I could get a job anywhere. Um, I was born on a farm um, surrounded by, well, to start with, there were only five cows. That's all my father could afford, but they increased um, we didn't start, start keeping sheep, actually, till about 12 years ago. We had a couple of pets, um, but not keeping them properly, commercially. We always had cattle. 
And I've always lived in a relatively isolated place. So um, I've been talking to or listening or observing animals all my life, really. Whereabouts were you when you when you first grew up? Are you on the same farm now? No, no, we have moved farms um, four times. I would move the. I was born on a farm, and we moved when I was ten days old. So I don't remember that. Whereabouts was the farm you were born? Um, I was born at a tiny village called Condicate near Stonewold, and then my father got the tenancy of his first county council farm at a small village called Clapton on the Hill near Borton on the Water. And then when I was 13, we moved to a village called Saintbury near Broadway. And then in 1980, we moved to Kitesnest, where I am now, where I hope to live forever. I don't want to go on holiday. I don't want to go abroad. I just want to stay here. <laughs> That's uh, what a lovely, what a lovely feeling to, to be completely content. Would you say that you are content in your life and always have been? Well, it's like babysitting, you know, for 400 children. You know, I can't really <laughs> leave them. At least I couldn't leave them um, for very long without worrying. And there's so mm-hmm. much to do. I mean, when I finish the day's farm work, I do farm work as a recreation to try to catch up by doing a bit more fencing or a bit <laughs> more cleaning or whatever. It's never ending. What sort of hours do you keep during the year? Does it is it early mornings, late nights, that sort of thing? It's hard physical work. But it's good for you. I mean, it's good for me. It stops me thinking. Just recently, my brother died, which was a huge shock. We'd been farming. We'd been living, you know, in the same family for 70 years. And we'd been farming in partnership since we left school. And suddenly he he died. And so I've been coming to terms with that for the last two and a half months. And I'm very sorry to hear that. It's a big shock. Um, and it, I've been sort of running away from the truth of it. But having physical hard work to do is definitely help. If I was living in the middle of a town, I think I would feel much worse. If you can go outside and get wet and cold and muddy, then you you don't think quite so deeply about things that are worrying you. But I've got no choice but to carry on um, following things that he uh, he believed in. I'm so sorry to hear that. That's um, that's really sad. It's um, it's interesting that you say that that going through the work and the the physical exertion. Yes, yeah, it feels to me good because if you get really exhausted, then all you want to do is come in the warm and get dry and have a cup of tea. I think if I was warm and dry and well fed the whole time, then my brain would start to think more. But it's um, it's a way of life. There's a, a lovely joke you may have heard where the lottery was first in, brought to England about a very old-fashioned farmer who won hundreds of millions and when asked what he would do, he said, oh, just carry on farming till it's all used up, and that's what that's what you do. <laughs> has it has that changed? In your, I, I imagine it changes all the time, and you know, um, as recession and things come and go, and the you know, the, obviously the, the going in and out of the EU, which I'm sure you've seen firsthand from a farmer's point of view. Um, how how has it changed since um, in the well, you know farming? Some farms have changed beyond all recognition. The so-called Green Revolution, which I think shouldn't have been called the Green Revolution at all because it was basically a chemical revolution when various pesticides, insecticides, herbicides, artificial fertilizers were invented. Many farmers used them, and actually all farmers were very, very much encouraged, almost um, persuaded and forced to use them because if you wanted a, a bank loan 
or you wanted anything else, if you wanted even to apply for a government grant, it was all dependent on increased um, productivity. But of course, nobody knew right at the beginning how much harm it would do, how much residue of um, poisons would build up in the soil and affect people's health. But of course, so there are very, very modern farmers now who do everything by machine and probably have quite easy time and go on holiday a lot. And there are still, fortunately, some small farmers, but you, you can't have it both ways. If you're small, then you have physical hard work and you don't make much money and it's long hours, but you do get um, a quality of life. Or if you're very, very super efficient, then you employ lots of people. You have the headache of doing all their PYE and giving them the right number of holidays and not giving them the wrong number of cups of tea and all the other headaches attendant on that. But I think I'm right in saying that worldwide, very small farms produce a huge um, proportion of the world's food, like 80%. And they're, they're known to be more productive per square inch or per square yard or per acre. Um, so it's a, it's a funny business that everyone was encouraged to be bigger when in fact it was less efficient and the quality of life, I would argue, is much less if you're zooming around on a super fast tractor you don't get the chance to see the clouds of goldfinches or whatever else that makes life worth living that's really really interesting to hear you say that because it's something that particularly with the, your your first book it really felt that you knew the land and the animals so so well and i imagine that would be impossible on a bigger farm i don't think it would be actually um i think if you're working for someone else or if you're employing people, you obviously require them to earn their money. And so you don't really want to say, you know, take half an hour off and enjoy the view. But if it's your own farm, you can always do that and then work a bit later in the evening. It's um, You just have to choose which life you want. But um, I know several farmers, fairly small farmers, whose children have chosen not to farm. And one couple in particular who were just getting to the point of wanting to retire and their children made it very clear that they didn't want to farm. So instead of retiring, they just decided to sort of put their boots back on and carry on. And um, it's it's good. They're really happy that it's uh, the young people, I think, in the past would have had less choice. It was farming if you're born into farming. That's what you did. But now there are so many choices. And yeah, choice, I, I, somebody only told me yesterday, choice is the enemy of leisure, I think. it's it, We've got too much choice. I think it can wear you out trying to decide what to do. I mean, I don't know if you get Netflix on the farm, but just the, the people seem to spend more time flicking through the options than they do actually watching films these days and things like that, don't they? It's a, a similar thing. Yeah, you're quite right. Rosman, you, you mentioned that your um, is like looking after four hundred children. Um, do you very much see your your animals, your your sheep and your cows and, and your other animals as your extended family sort of thing? No, I don't actually. Um, people often say this, and maybe that's how I appear. But I don't even class myself as an animal lover. I just think <laughs> it's normal. I think anyone who isn't should be boiled in oil. But I don't say um, I'm, I love babies. I don't say I love dogs. I don't say I love horses. I just think that all living creatures deserve absolute respect and to be uh, given the best life you can possibly manage. 
And had I had children, I would have wanted to be the best mother in the world, but I would not have succeeded. Obviously, nobody can. Um, so I do the best I can with the animals. And I think um, that's all we can do. But as I said, I don't, I don't see them as my children. No, they, they, they have their own lives. They have their own dignity. And quite a lot of them don't like me, and that's fine. That's even better, really. Um, that I just need to enable them to live the life they want to live. Obviously, a lot of people say to me, how can you say, you know, you're looking after them if you're just planning to kill and eat them? And this morning, I've just loaded three animals um, to the abattoir and they're on their way there now. It is difficult. I do like them enormously and I miss them. But I've come to the conclusion with all the research I've done that human beings at some point in history, because climatic conditions um, decimated the trees they were living in. They had to skip out across the plains and scavenge meat from what other bigger animals had killed. This is why we've got bigger brains. This apparently is why babies that used to be born possibly after an 18 months gestation, being born then perfectly capable of holding up their heads and having some independence, had to be born earlier and earlier because their heads were bigger, their brains were bigger, they couldn't physically be born. So I think we can't get away from the fact that human beings are what they are today because they ate meat. So it isn't intrinsically wrong, much as I would like someone to convince me that it was, actually. Um, it's just the way you do it. It's the quality of life. And my aim is to give my animals a sufficient quality of life and a really quick and uh, good death. It's not possible to do everything. But I think my animals will get a better death than most people. They don't uh, end up sort of suffering and on in a wheelchair or on crutches and having to take pain relief. It's it's a shame that we have to do it, but it is relatively quick. And some of the abattoirs I've worked with are very, very humane and they're very efficient, so they really don't want anything to suffer. But again, it would be better if I could shoot them in the field. That would be the ultimate. But the laws of the land dictate you have to go to an abattoir at the moment. It's something I think about every day. It's not something I feel blasé about. I debate with myself as I walk around, should we, could we be vegan? But most vegans I know use food from third world countries. They have to get all the things they need by importing uh, nutrition. And I tend to believe that if you can be self-sufficient uh, to a large degree, it's, it's a better policy. Have you Have you ever been a vegetarian? at any point during your life? We've, we've always had meat in our diet, but I've got lots of friends who are vegetarians and friends who are vegans and friends who are determined to be vegans to prove that it's possible. But um, I've also had many friends who've had to give up being vegan because they couldn't make themselves well enough. And I think worldwide, if, and I hate quoting statistics really, but I, I keep reading that there are five times more recovering vegans in the world than there are vegans because they haven't had access to sufficient variation in their diet to, to stay healthy. So it's not easy. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, there was a big fad, certainly three, four years ago, was it, when it seemed everyone was going vegan, trying. Even my wife went vegan for a little while, actually. Um, and it, it feels like we've sort of come back a little bit from there. Is that, do you think that's fair? Well, from what little I know, the vegan aisles in the supermarket um, are very, very high in sugar and high in lots of things that are perhaps even less desirable than eating meat. 
it's not easy. If you, I think evolution tells us um, that we that we are on a a plane where a lot of people need to eat meat, that you have to do it respectfully, and not um, not keep. It's the quality of the meat. Not all meat is the same. If an animal is kept inside and fed antibiotics every day to save it dropping dead, if it's fed um, grains, which animal, cattle ruminants are not meant to eat grain, they're meant to eat grass. They've got the ability to turn cellulose into something that people can eat, whereas humans can't eat grass. So most of England, more than half, probably two thirds, is grass. A lot of it is too steep to grow crops. So the only way to make uh, food from it is to convert it into protein through ruminant digestive system. It's perfectly designed to do that. So it's, it's, it's at the moment, that's the way I believe we should be going. Though I'm open to argument. If you find someone who wants to tell me, it's what humans do, isn't it? We have to keep questioning everything and keep keep learning. In the podcast um, that we recorded a couple of weeks ago, um, Mark Hedges, who edits the magazine, said the countryside is not a theme park. And hearing you talk about this, it's, it's to get away from that rose-tinted spectacles, romantic view of the countryside. It, it sounds like that you're very much got your got your head screwed on that way. Um, at the same time, your, your the lovely stories you tell about the you know particularly um, the mothers and their calves and things like that almost anthropomorphizes the animals a little is that quite a hard thing to to reconcile for you it is very hard to reconcile i've got friends who've got small farms who've got cattle who they absolutely adore that they know everything about them it's incredibly difficult in an ideal um farming situation you would want um to better sort of kill mothers and cows together but it, it, it's it's a little bit the same. I don't like to compare them with humans because humans are just so awkward and so dangerous and so troublemaking. But, you know, all the humans you know, some of them have got children who go off to university, who go live in Australia, and some who come home every weekend. There's the different degrees of attachment with in the human population and there are with cattle and sheep. Some are very, very devoted to their offspring. But some are only devoted for the first year. And then when they have another one, they devote their attention to that one. And the, the, the older one goes off and lives their own life. And yet some don't. Some stay as very strong family units. There's enormous variation. So you have to forge a path in life to do what you feel is right. And what I do every day of the year is try to produce food to make all my customers healthy. There doesn't seem to be any other reason for living to me. You want to add to what may be loved is something somebody told me years ago is a reason for living and to make people healthy we say if i was producing something which i knew had got chemical residues in antibiotic residues and i was just making a fortune but the people who were eating it were going to be ill that would be soul destroying it would be criminal yeah absolutely absolutely so let's, let's turn to a slightly different tack um when what made you first start writing down um your your stories and writing what eventually became the secret life of cows complete accident i never ever wanted to be a writer i never even considered i like reading but i never considered writing but i did tell stories all the time if anyone asked me a question about the farm or about a particular cow i would just illustrate it 
as you might say that your dog or your child was really clever. They learned to open the door, open to put the light switch on, learned to put the kettle on, whatever. Learned how to use a dog door, whatever, cat door. I just automatically um, illustrated all my stories. And then one day somebody suggested that I might like to write them down. So I wrote down that one story I just told. And I just found I really enjoyed remembering. So I just kept a notebook in the kitchen drawer. And after every meal, I just wrote down what had happened that day. And I just uh, really enjoyed it. And eventually it grew to become something resembling a book. And then I was lucky enough to be published by a small publisher. And then 15 years later, having had no thought that anything else would ever happen, um, it was sort of rediscovered and uh, republished and then published in 24 different languages. So that's been fun. I, I just think that's a wonderful story. How did that happen? How did that come about? Because as as you say, it was one of the well, things I wanted to ask is this it, it was, 15 year gap. It was just such incredible luck that Alan Bennett um, enjoyed reading the book and mentioned it in his diary, just a couple of lines. And then when Faber and Faber were planning to publish his collected diaries, they saw the mention of the book and decided that if he'd read it, they ought to read it. But then they found that it was out of print, so they decided to republish it. And then I didn't know much about the publishing world, but apparently publishers um, are open to offers from other countries to buy translation rights. 24 countries picked up the rights. It's fun to see all the different covers and the, the, what the, the illustrations and the way they produce the book. It's been, it's been great fun. Presumably, I mean, maybe maybe it wasn't, but presumably it was a huge surprise to you when that happened. Um, did you yes. get a phone call and think, oh my God, or a letter I or what happened? An, e an email um, in 2015, just saying we're from Faber, we've discovered your book, we'd like to republish it. And then only a few weeks later, um, Norway has asked if they can buy the translation rights and then Poland and then someone else. So it, it, it's really um, been a new angle on my life, which normally was just Wellingtons and mud. <laughs> <laughs> what, are, what are the things that you've been asked most about The Secret Life of Cows? Um, because obviously it's you know five years since it rose up the bestseller lists. And I imagine you've, uh, you've done an awful lot of talking about it since then. I've had um, huge benefits, really. I've lovely emails and letters from all over the world from people telling me how much they like cows, telling me, sharing stories of, of their childhoods with cows. And so I've met a lot of people that I wouldn't have met otherwise. And I've learned to use the internet. I didn't ever touch a keyboard till I was 50. But my brother suggested that no publisher would read my handwriting, which was true. So he presented <laughs> me with a with a screen and a keyboard so I could type it. Was it straight away after that was published or republished rather, did you start thinking about a second book or was has that uh, come a bit later? Fairly soon afterwards, yeah. Faber suggested I might try to write um, a farm diary, which I did try to write. But because I don't keep a diary all the time, it was a bit disjointed. There would be four-year gaps. Um, so then we took out all the dates and made it more into a, a mishmash of stories. You know, having lived your entire life around animals and on farms, are these things that seem fairly obvious to you that surprise people about, you know, particularly the, the family relationships of the animals you talk about, that sort of thing? 
Yeah, but it's interesting how many other people have got stories to tell as well who just never thought to write them down. I think every farmer can't help but notice how um, their animals react to them. Obviously, people with horses and dogs are very, very acutely aware, and they use their dogs particularly and cats as um, judges of character. If they have someone coming to their house and the dog growls at them, I hate they probably know it's not a very nice person. And if cats run away, you know, you, you're best to listen. Well, I get the same with my cows. And if I'm out there in the winter on a dark night in the middle of the wood and it's quite spooky, I'm not frightened. If my cows are calm, I know there are no strangers there waiting to murder me. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of a cow as a watchdog before, but that's, uh, that's well, they fascinating. Just, they know a lot. They know a lot. Do you have any particular favourites? Yeah, I shouldn't do. I try not to, but I have. Um, not with the cows so much, but there's, there's a couple of sheep that are so incredibly friendly and so incredibly clever and so incredibly selfish and naughty that I do spoil them. <laughs> yeah. I never spoil anything with food. I never bribe anything to like me. I never take them treats. Um, but if they choose to like me, then I, I do benefit. Um, and I'm really pleased. And if you were out there on a cold job, going through every sheep, looking at every foot and checking them, and two or three just come and stand and talk to you, it's really rather nice. Lovely. Do you do you feel that you are having a sort of conversation with them? Is it? Do you get that close to them? I know obviously they can't talk, but... They can make me do things. They can ask me to open a gate. They can scream at me and look at me and walk to the gate, but... Um, I, I can't communicate with them really, but they can wrap me around their little fingers if they want me to do something. If they want hay <laughs> or they want me to open a gate, they know how to scream. They know how to get in the way. Um, just like cats, they can make you do what you don't think you want to do. Yes, we we got a cat in the summer and it's been, uh, it was a kitten and I had no idea the chaos we were in for. And now the thought of what we'll do with the Christmas tree is... Uh, is looming and I'm not sure what's going to happen but it's not going to be pretty <laughs> so have you always had a house full of other animals as well obviously you've mentioned cats and dogs and, and horses and things we've got um, five cats but they're farm cats they don't come in the house and we mm -hmm. don't have a dog and people often ask me why we don't have a dog and the answer is at the moment we're fit enough to go walk around the sheep ourselves but we don't bring our sheep in very often and a highly trained collie would be bored out of its mind. They like to work. They like to please their owners. And they like to do a good job. And if we said, you know, we just get the sheep in once a month, what are they going to do? And all my neighbors tell me that if you don't keep your dog tied up or shut up, it'll go and get the neighbor's sheep in. It'll do something. because it, That's what it's trained to do. And yes. I don't want the dog just to keep it tied up. Um, I hate the idea of leaving a dog in a cage or even I want it to have freedom. So at the moment, we don't really need a dog. It would be very handy sometimes when the sheep misbehave and we have to walk around the field 10 times. We do wish we'd got a dog. But it wouldn't be fair on the dog to have to hang around just for our convenience to be used once a month. Um, just a few sort of general questions now about um, your life and your, 
the countryside and so on. What, what's your first memory of the countryside? Oh, that's a difficult question. Um, I do remember holding a bottle to feed a lamb when I was about 18 months old. There is a picture of me doing that in my grandmother's orchard. Wow. And I do remember that. And I also remember at 18 months old hiding my brother's Wellingtons. I can remember seeing them on the doorstep and thinking what a good joke it would be if I hid them. And I did that. And then he got the blame for losing them. And I can remember really enjoying that. Years later, I felt a bit guilty for having been that naughty. It seemed to me to like so funny at the time. And I was, of course, forgiven because I was so little. Wildflowers, seeing beautiful wildflowers really had an effect on me. They were all on the roadside verges everywhere I went. And um, people hadn't got flail mowers then, and they hadn't got weed killers. And so wildflowers played a huge part in my in my childhood. And every, it should be there for everyone. But now we've got the power to destroy them, and people do, really without thinking. It's, it's very sad. Now, I know one of the articles you wrote for us a few years ago, you mentioned that there's something like only 3% of the number of wildflowers around today as there were after the Second World War. Um, it's tragic. It takes away quality of life. And also they have a role to play. They're not just pretty. They're there to feed bumblebees and lots of other insects they've got a role to play and that's what the trouble with people is they've got the power to destroy um and they shouldn't use it so um casually things are there for a reason and we need to work with them rather than dominating them and destroying things because we regret it quite often people in england got rid of every single kite they ate them they shot them they got rid of every single one and then the government decided to bring some in from Spain. Well, you know, that's sort of cheating. We shouldn't have got rid of them in the third place. It's very nice to see them. But if we're stupid enough to get rid of them, maybe we should think about whether we have to live with the consequences of that. So maybe we're not allowed to bring them back because we, we lost, uh, lost them in the first place. It needs a lot of thinking about. I wish we'd never got rid of things. I wish we'd lived in harmony and learned to live alongside everything that was there before, bears and wolves and tigers and everything else. It's it's people who were in the way. We're in their domain. So if we choose to live with them, we should try to live alongside them somehow. If you if we made you queen of the countryside for you know a year, what are the things you'd like to see change about how things are done or farming or the environmental policies that we have, that sort of thing? Well, I think I'd like more um, small farms encouraged. When we first joined the joined Europe, there were benefits, obviously, but some of the idiotic um, subsidies allowed you to, to be paid to remove a hedgerow and also be paid to plant a new one. And I actually saw um, the roadsides, one straight road and the hedge on the left had been completely uprooted and the farmer had been given a grant for that, and the hedge on the right was just being newly replanted, with, um, and he had a grant for that. So there were crazy things, and all the hedgerow removal should stop. Hedges are there; they're shelter belts, they're micro uh, environments for so many insects. And of course, I would love to limit, if not ban, all the terribly dangerous chemicals. But 
you know, if you beat me dictator of the world, I'll do my best to improve everything. <laughs> there's too many people in, in power, in positions of power, who don't seem to have any connection with the countryside. Farming schemes that we are um, obliged to follow have quite often been um, planned by lobby groups from different uh, charities, all for very virtuous reasons, but not with the whole farming uh, background in, in, in view. If, if the RSPB, for example, wants to save one species of bird, which I'm very in favor of, and they try to make farmers create conditions which are favorable to that bird, it often means that the cows and sheep on that farm have to be just shoved in a barn out of the way because they're um, in 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 the way of the bird being survived. So that it's not a holistic view. Uh, you need more practical farmers, I think, in on the uh, legislation side rather than people in offices who do things so beautifully but without considering the consequences. So there's a lot of... of uh, room for improvement yeah absolutely that's that's so true it feels like a lot of decisions get made by people who aren't really connected to the consequences no it's a big deal because farmers are offered money to do things like plant wildflowers plant certain crops for, to benefit certain species butterflies birds bumblebees it's all very important but if they've also got farm animals on that land and they have to be put in a barn where they should not be. They sh shouldn't. They should have access to freedom as much as possible. It's uh, it's not thought out properly. Yeah. I was going to ask you a bit about the Cotswolds. Obviously, you've you've lived there um, your whole life. What was it like? What was your childhood like? Was it a sort of um, I imagine it in my head as a kind of Laurie Lee, perfect sunsets. And was it like that or was it a little bit different? I was little. We lived in a very, very uh, remote village. And our house was through the village and out the other side, sort of 500 yards up in the middle of a field. So I really hardly ever saw a car. I had to walk. Um, the first part of my trip to school was in Wellington through the farm and then leave the Wellingtons in a shed and put shoes on. We didn't even have electricity when we first moved into our first farm. We didn't have uh, running water, didn't have telephone. Incredible. And but now things... here you are doing a video call on the internet. I know. It's, very <laughs> it's a very strange thing. I don't feel comfortable with video calls, really, partly because of my hearing being so poor. But it is, it is a strange and um, it's a drastic change, having all this technology. It really... I tend to prefer the children I know who I'm, I feel happier about the ones who climb trees and run around rather than look at their phones all day. It just seems to me rather better. Well, what do you do if you get a power cut? What do you do if your life revolves around technology and suddenly the wind blows and it knocks a pole down? And what do you do? You just sit there in desperation. <laughs> What sort of changes have you seen in the Cotswolds apart from that? You mentioned that you had no water and electricity when you first moved in, but now it's quite a it's a very quite a touristy area, I think that's fair to say, isn't it? Still... Yeah. Um, I was just talking to someone the other day who was born in a village near here in a cottage that probably cost three hundred pounds 
when it was built and they had to move it. It would now sell for half a million. It's just um, a lot of people who w were born here and would like to live here can't afford to. And that's rather strange, isn't it? You should be able to live in the area you were born in. It just seems sensible if all your relatives are there. And yet people from no uh, countryside background can afford to live here, but they don't necessarily fit in. But I have no idea how to change this. Uh, everything we've seen in the Cotswolds is very much geared to tourists. I think the economy depends on tourism. I'm not going to sound parliament because I've got lots of um, arguments against things, but I've got no real solutions, I have to admit. It, it is difficult, and obviously it does bring in a lot. The villages are beautiful. You can see why people want to visit them, um, and the countryside's lovely. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us some of the stories about your favourite sheep or cows over the years, your funniest ones. Uh, well, I've got a, a sheep at the moment called Dandelion. When she was born, she was smaller than a small cat. She was really tiny. And she was a twin. And her mother licked uh, both of them dry. But when they both got up to go to suckle from her, she looked around and she just decided she didn't want this one and she pushed it away. And I happened to be standing there, which was unusual. And I tried to make her accept it. And she just wouldn't. She was going to kill it. She'd got horns and she was going to push it away quite viciously so I brought her home to to rear and her mouth was so tiny like she couldn't even uh, us the teat from the bottle that I got to feed others I had to feed her with a syringe to begin with and then I found a tiny bottle on the internet which was maybe designed for a pet mouse or something so small but she was thrilled and she just has become a very interesting companion I won't call her a friend exactly because I'm her servant but I <laughs> <laughs> she's had four lambs and uh, she's a very proud sheep when her daughter um, decided to leave home she literally jumped the fence and went off with some teenagers you could just see that the mother just well you know I'm not going to follow if she wants me she knows where I am and she just walked off in a house obviously hurt that her daughter had left her but much yeah. more proud to go after her. Oh my goodness, that's amazing! And how about your your favourite cows? I haven't totally got a favourite cow. Fortunately, I've tried hard not to all my life. I do like, I admire them all. Some are really lovely; you can go and give them a cuddle. Some would hate you two; they just walk off or even kick you. So I I just like them being themselves. And and over the years, I go and spend less time with them. I spend more time watching and less time stroking, really, because I like to see them being cows. I don't want them to fit in with my routine. They're perfectly happy. If I dropped dead, they would not care a fig. And that's good. If I had a pet, like a, a pony, probably, it would care, I imagine, if I dropped dead. But the cows and the sheep wouldn't. And that's important because I want them to carry on. Rosamond, I, I know we're running out of time now. Just to say thank you very much indeed for, for coming on. Uh, great stuff. Thank you okay. very much for asking me. Oh, no, not at all. <laughs>